Thank you. I hope that in your thanksgiving, praising the Lord, you can pause a few moments and also praise, uh, thank, give thanks for who God is and give thanks for God who saves us from our sin. Isn't that amazing? Thank you for that wonderful song. Take your Bible, turn to the book of James, please. James chapter 4. We're finishing up James 4 today into James 5. James chapter 4. We're getting close to the end. It's amazing. It feels like we just start this book and then we're almost to the end, but I have I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. You know, um, uh, James is a book about practical Christian living, and it, it details so many important topics that have to do with our Christian life. You know, I can think of story after story where I allowed my pride to, uh, to just get in my way. I, I tell you, I mean, I could, I could pick from half a dozen easily this morning. I was thinking uh, as I was preparing this message about the time, the, the, probably the most obvious time to me was when I was about 10, and I was working at a church work day when all the men get out to do work, you know. So I was a young man, and I was interested in showing how, how strong I was, and we were spreading mulch, something that churches do. And uh, so we were spreading mulch around and uh, filled up a wheelbarrow full of mulch. I turned to my friend and I said, check out how much mulch I got in my wheelbarrow. You know exactly what happened as soon as I tried to move that thing, right? I, I began to move it. That wasn't the problem, but it was one of those single-wheel wheelbarrows, and I moved it about three feet, and it tipped to the left and spilled all over the concrete. And I had about seven people looking at me, laughing at me, saying, and one man said, "Before uh, uh, after pride comes the fall. And that's exactly what he said. And um, I can think of uh, so many examples like that. We all can, if we're honest with ourselves. We can think of Stories where we've not been humble, we've been prideful. You know, we're not born humble. Uh, we're, we're not born with uh, humility uh, in, in us. We're, we're born uh, prideful. We're born full of pride or pr- proud, we should say. We have, we have to be taught to be, uh, to be humble. We have to learn to be humble. That's the title of my message this morning is Learning Humility. And the book of James has a lot to say about the choices we make and how we live. And perhaps if you had to like think of an all-encompassing sinful attitude that once you see it, it's hard to unsee. It's pride. Man, once you, once you see pride in your life, once you see how much of impact pride can have as its fingers work its way into the different avenues of different parts of your life, it, it, it's shocking. You have to take a step back and say, wow, I had no idea I had so much pride in my heart. Pride impacts our decisions. Uh, pride changes your relationships. Pride colors how you think about yourself. Pride changes how you think about people around you. And once you start to think through how dangerous pride is, it, you, you better come to grips with the fact that you need to learn biblical humility because the, pride, the Bible has a lot to say about humility. In fact, the whole book of Isaiah could be said to be about how God exalts humble people and God takes down proud people. And today we're in James, though, and I have to ask the question, what's the essence of sinful pride? You know, we usually think about pride as either boasting about our accomplishments, like I was with my load full of, of, uh, of mulch, or maybe disregarding the needs of others, such as my way or the highway. But I believe the essence of pride essentially is ignoring God, and it's not thinking about God at all. People ignore God when they boast and brag about their accomplishments. They've forgotten that God's the one who gave them the abilities, the gifts to do what they're doing. They've forgotten that God is the one who deserves the credit and glory. People ignore God when they demand their own way and don't listen to others, and they think of themselves as being like God. How can we develop proper humility? Well, the passage we have today, starting in verse 11, chapter 4, 
gives us these three areas where pride has run amok. So therefore, we have three specific areas where we can learn humility. Father, we ask that you help us in our hearts to be willing to change. Uh, change is so hard as, as we get uh, enmeshed in sin, as we become used to doing things our way. God, I pray you would break through that self-confidence that we often have and help us to evaluate ourselves in light of your truth. Uh, Lord, we ask that the Spirit have full reign in our hearts today. We would hold nothing too tightly. We would have a loose grip on our future, a loose grip on our relationships, a loose grip on our things, so that as you show your authority, your lordship in each of these areas, God, may we submit to it. And I pray that today you would give us the hope of the grace that's in the gospel of Christ, that we know that because of his shed blood on the cross, we have not only forgiveness of sin, but we have a home in heaven and peace with you. And we're thankful for that, Lord. I pray that you would help us to come before you today with a humble heart, but I pray, O oh Lord, you'd be with those uh, not able to be here due to illness and, and travel. I pray you'd protect them. But Father, I also pray for those here this morning who do not yet know you as Savior, that you would continue to work on them and draw them close to yourself, that they might trust you, learn to trust you as their Savior. We pray your blessings on the service today in Jesus' name. Amen. Humility is, with respect here in our passage today, with respect to three areas of our life, we'll begin in verse 11, looking what the Bible has to say about humility with other people. How do we show humility? We deal with others. Specifically, I believe this confrontation, as we'll see in a moment, is directed to show us how we should have an attitude of humility when we see faults in other people. Because isn't it, isn't it the truth that once we start to see faults and difficulties in other people that we tend to be proud about it. Look at verse 11. We'll see the first command he has that we are not to slander one another. He says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Uh, the first thing you might notice is his tone has shifted a little bit. If you go back to the last uh, passage, chapter 4, uh, he, he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. You remember that? Don't you know that friendship with the world, chapter 4 and verse 4, now he calls them brothers. He's talking, he's talking kindly to them, and he says, brothers, don't slander your brother in Christ. Don't speak poorly of your brothers in Christ. Don't accuse them of wicked behavior. Don't speak with a judgmental attitude about someone's shortcomings. And this is forbidden in Scripture. We're not to slander. He says in, in Psalm 105, God says, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. What attitude is connected with slander in this passage? The attitude of pride. You see that? If you slander people, it comes from a heart of pride. And here directly, he says, you are not to slander one another. That is, you are not to speak evil, which has the idea of being disrespectful, of being unkind, of, of defamation. This is unkind judgment and condemnation or a brother. You might even consider this as putting someone in their place. And today, we do this in a lot of different ways. And, I'm, and, and a lot of times, it's acceptable in our culture as a form of joking or a form of jesting or even as a, as a sarcasm. As, ah, it's no big deal. I'm just putting you in your place or having a good time, but sometimes we're not having a good time. And we have to be careful here because the idea is that you need to be loving to your brother. And as you broaden out this context and you see exactly what he's saying, we're saying we're not to slander our brethren and specifically talking bad about their shortcomings or their sins. Look at the next verse. He says that we are not to judge one another. If you keep reading in verse 11, he says, he says, do not 
speak evil of one another. Brethren, he who speaks evil of a brother and, there's your word, judges his brother, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. He says that if you speak evil of a brother, you are judging your brother. You are coming from a different perspective. You're coming like their judge. You are declaring something about them. You're coming to them from a, from a up here looking down upon them instead of as a brother. And he says, if you're doing this, you're actually judging the law and placing yourself in a position of sinning against the law. In the simplest terms, I believe this means it's a violation of the law. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 16, the Old Testament law tells us this, you shall not go about as a talebearer of your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor, I am the Lord. You're not to have a uh, going around speaking evil against other people, lying about your brothers and speaking contrary to the law here or even to the law of liberty, which is the rule that he describes the guideline for how Christians are to live. But notice this next phrase. He says, if you do this, you're not a doer of the law, but a, a, a judge of the law. And this is really interesting, and it's difficult to completely understand the point he's making, but I think what he's saying is that your relationship to the law changes when you enforce the law instead of obey the law. And if you walk around like an enforcer, and your job is to point out everyone else's faults, you're no longer doing the law. Now you are judging the law. You are enforcing the law. You are trying to criticize other people. And we see this happen. People excuse their own behavior because they're telling other people what they did was wrong. Or to put it in a way that a lot of you understand, why is it okay for the police officer to speed? <laughs> why is he speeding? Because he's got to capture the speeder right? He's breaking the law to capture the guy. And we're not in the position, we don't have the authority to be judging one another like this. We're not to be called to be this way. He says, you're not to put yourself above the law like this. You're not to judge the law. You're not to use the law against your brother as a tool or as a weapon. Your job is not to make sure that everybody at church is doing what God says they should be doing. God did not appoint you the enforcement officer. Your job is not to walk around and take notes, we have this situation sometimes. Um, have you ever heard this happen before? Dad, why weren't you closing your eyes during prayer? <laughs> How do you know I wasn't closing my eyes during prayer? <laughs> right? Enforcement officers, every, every group has them. And God says, you are not to act that way towards your brethren. Why do you do that to each other? You do it often to make yourself feel better. You walk around and if you criticize other people, you build yourself up. There's a lot of pride behind that. He says, do not do that. Who made you the boss? God did not. And there's another element to this. As he says, don't slander, don't judge. And there's an important reason why we let God do the judging and God do this convicting. Look at this next passage. He says, for there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? What's God's ability? God can judge. God can destroy. God gives the law, but God is a lawgiver, and because He's a lawgiver, He has the power to save. There's a huge difference between you and me and Him. I can go around and tell you what you're doing wrong, but I can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. And when God convicts, He convicts with grace. As he convicts us of sin, it's not a condemnation of I am lost without hope. He convicts with grace that we come to Christ and he forgives. 
We come to Christ with grace. He, he convicts us with grace. He convicts us without judgment here. He convicts us. He is able to save. He's able to destroy. God is the Savior. He is the lawgiver. We see this from Isaiah. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. What is his attribute at the end of this? What can he do? He will what? Save us. God saves us. That's the amazing thing. That's the difference. All the difference in the world. That makes a huge difference. If God comes to me and convicts me of sin, I welcome it and I'm grateful for it because his conviction of my sin is an avenue towards me being right with him. So what's the proper way to deal with people who are in sin? You might be asking yourself, okay, are you saying that I'm not allowed to talk to anybody about their sin? I'm not saying that at all. That's not what the passage is telling us. It's saying the way you talk matters a lot, and the way you approach them matters a lot. There are a couple other passages I want to briefly mention. We've, we've done and we've dealt with these at length in other, in other sermons, so I'm not going to go into extreme length here, but I want to mention them at least. The first is from Matthew 7. Jesus, speaking to us, says, judge not that you be not judged. In other words, be careful about judging others because the way you judge, you will be judged. Verse 2, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measurement you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and don't consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck in your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There's a lot we could say about this, but I want to make one point. And that is this, that you need to deal with your stuff first. There's a speck in your brother's eye that you can see, but there is a gigantic beam or a post sticking out of your face, and you don't even notice it. He says, how are you going to help your brother with a little speck in his eye unless you first deal with a gigantic post that's sticking out of your face? Now, we've heard this so many times. I read that, and not a single one of you even laughed. When Jesus said this the first time, I'm sure all the people kind of at least snickered a little bit, like, what? A a beam? A, A plank? sticking out of someone's eye? How is that even possible? I can imagine the conversation that would have erupted as he said this. And we've gotten used to this imagery, but the picture is very clear that you cannot help your brother unless you first deal with your side. He's not saying you shouldn't help your brother. He's saying first deal with your own side of the line. So be careful, deal with your side of the line, and then you should do everything to restore a brother. Galatians 6 says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one. You are to go and lovingly restore people who are caught up in sin. That happens. There are times when people get caught up in sin. They are overwhelmed. They are overtaken in a trespass. It is like ju- the word overtaken is like being jumped by a, by a robber. It's like they, are, they, are, they, are, they, are, they cannot do anything. Powerless. They are powerless against this, it feels like. And what he says is, you who are spiritual, the one of you who are spiritually minded should go to this person and you work to put him in his place, Right? No, it says you are to restore him. The goal is not to humble him or to rebuke him per se. The goal is to restore him so that he can walk with God again, so that he has good fellowship with the church again. And notice he throws a warning. He says, you be careful. If you consider yourself spiritual and you go to help someone else, you better be careful. He says, because you better do this with gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Because you're in the same, you're made of the same stuff. We're all human flesh. You could fall in the same exact way if you're not careful. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I've heard more than one person say, well, I would never. Don't ever say that. That's pride speaking. 
Notice the humility in this passage. We are to do this with reasonableness and gentleness, considering ourselves with a humble mindset. There's no brother left behind. Matthew 18 also talks about this. It says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have what? You have gained. What's the purpose of this going to a brother? Is it to make yourself right and him wrong? No, it's to restore, to gain your brother, to restore a relationship. The second area of humility we talked about here dealing with other people, the second area of humility has to deal with our future. I, I think that this also is, is very important as we work into uh, thinking about our, our bragging. What we tend to do with our pride is we think we know what's going to happen. We think we have the future figured out. You know, plans are good. Our deacons met uh, last Saturday, not yesterday, but a week ago, and worked through our 2024 calendar, our responsibilities. We met before that as, as a staff and worked through our calendars and responsibilities. And every week, our, our pastoral staff, uh, uh, we, we meet together, we plan things, we talk about things, we work through things. You know, as they say, if you, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. You know, that you've heard that before. You need to plan. There's nothing wrong with, with, with charting a account, with keeping a calendar, do, just want to be clear here, all the junior high boys out there, this is not an excuse for a reason why you can't write stuff down or you can't keep a calendar, okay? There are people who are like, well, I don't, this, this is God's reason. I don't have to worry about the future. I'll just, just kind of go by, you know, do whatever I want to do. That's not what he's saying in this next passage, okay? Are we clear? Nothing wrong with planning. Planning is fine. But planning, strategizing about how we'll live our future, as with anything, you can plan humbly or you can plan with pride. And so let's look at what he says here. There's two perspectives. The first perspective is the perspective of the proud. And notice how they do this perspective of the proud is to live without God or life without God. He says, come now, you who say, and he's, he's talking to an audience, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. He has a very direct confrontation to them, and he quotes them. Notice all the things they have figured out. There's a time frame. Today or tomorrow we're going to make this happen. Notice there's a place in mind. We're going to go to such and such a city. He has it picked out. There's a long-term plan, and we're going to spend a year there, and there are actions while they're there. We're going to be working there. And they even have results planned. We're going to be buying and selling and making a profit. Now, life without God in the picture, you're trying to make plans, you're, trying to, you know, you're thinking you can make plans without factoring in uh, God, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to go a place and make a profit. That's not the issue. The issue is not with what they're doing, it's, it's how they're doing it. So what they were doing was assuming upon God, not trusting God. They're assuming they're going to keep getting God's natural good gifts that God gives us. I mean, this is normal. It's a normal way of living. We, we assume God's goods will keep coming until they, until they don't. I want you to imagination th with me, okay? Just, just imagine this happens. Imagine you're minding your own business, and, and sitting on a Saturday morning uh, at your house, and you're just reading, uh, reading the news. And there's a knock on your door at 9 o'clock in the morning, and you think, what is this? You get up and go to your door. There's someone at your door, and they have $200 of cash. And they say, I would like to give you $200 of cash. And you say, what are the strings attached to this gift? They say, nothing. Have a great day. And they walk away. And you think, that's pretty nice. Unexpected. Maybe you spend it, maybe you don't. The next day, next Saturday, you make sure you're home at 9 o'clock in the morning. You're sitting, there on your, you're sitting there on your couch, and all of a sudden you hear another knock at the door, and you go to the door, and there's another, that same person, and they have another cash envelope in their, in their hand. And you say, hi, how are you? And they say, I have $200 of cash for you. And you say, what are the strings attached? They say, there are no strings attached. You say, thank you very much. And they walk away, and you think to yourself, this is a good deal. I like this. For the next year, every single Saturday, 
at nine o'clock sharp. You could set your watch by it. They even paid attention to daylight savings time, right? Like they're, they're on it. And every day at nine o'clock, they show up every Saturday at nine o'clock, they show up and give you $200. And you think to yourself, this is great. I like this. And then one day they don't show up. What do you do? Where is that person? Why aren't they here? I was, I had budgeted in that $200 a week into my... You, you, you are angry. You might even get angry. You're angry that, that they didn't come and give you. Now, did you, did you deserve that $200? Every week it was a gift. Every week they showed up. You didn't know if they were going to show up or not. Every week they showed up, they gave you the $200. It was a gift from them to you. You had no rights over that, and you received that gift, but you started to rely on it. And you started to depend on it, and you started to think to yourself that you actually deserved it. And that for some weird reason, they owed it to you because they had been doing it for a while. And if they stop doing it, they have no right. Or they have no, they have no, there's nothing wrong with them stopping to give you at any point. I want you to think about this, that so often our relationship with God is like that. God has given us so many good things all the time. Even our health. I mean, you think about it. How often do you just think about, Lord, thank you for giving me good health today. I, I, you don't even think about the things that go wrong all the time until they go wrong. Like you have a thumbnail and it like ruins your day, right? Uh, like it's like, I can't believe my thumbnail is messed up. It's such a, such a problem. You don't think about that thumbnail until it's messed up and then it ruins your whole day. And you don't think, sit there and thank God. Thank you, Lord, for giving me hands that work. Some of you have arthritis and you, think, you say, Lord, please give me hands that work. My hands hurt and, and I'm in pain. And you, that is on your mind. And, but are you angry when God takes something that's his? Are you angry when God stops giving you something that he doesn't, have any, any, uh, he doesn't have to give to you? I think when we take God's gifts for granted, we're assuming God will continue giving them to me. He's going to continue giving me the same favor he always has. That's an assumption, and I think that's exactly part of the pride that's associated here. You begin to think that you deserve it. Look at verse 14. He says, whereas you do not know. When he uses the word whereas, he says, here's some information you did not have that might make the difference in your planning. Here is the missing piece. Whereas, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Everything can change tomorrow. That's the first bit of information you need to remember. Everything can change tomorrow. There are things that you take for granted today that could be different tomorrow. Some of you have walked this path. I've been with you when you walked it, and it's hard when things change in a moment. It happens. Never assume that you know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's a proud attitude. He says, never assume. Everything could change tomorrow. And the second point he makes, the reality check number two, is what is your life? As he said, everything can change tomorrow, and look at your life. Our lives are short. Our lives are fragile. The Bible describes our life as a vapor that appears for a while before disappearing. It's like walking out on a cold day. You breathe. There's the vapor, and then it's gone. He says, your life is like a vapor. I've spoken to many people who are elderly. It's amazing. I love talking to elderly people. And I was talking to one not too long ago, celebrating a birthday, mid-90s, and we got to talking. I said, what, you know, do you have anything advice you want to say? You know, anything you wanted to, to share with me about your life? And they said, you know, it just goes so fast. And this is what he's saying. Your life is a vapor. Who, who, who do you think you are? Why, why do you think you can just make these decisions without consulting God? So the action of the humble is to acknowledge God's will. 
The, the attitude of the proud, the perspective of the proud, is life without God. You do, God does not even factor into the picture, but the humble person acknowledges God. This doesn't mean you shouldn't make plans, but when you make plans, you do so with the understanding that He's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who's in control. I mean, I'll make the plans, but God, if you want to interrupt my plans, you are a sovereign God. You have the right, the privilege, the authority to do so. And I make my plans with that understanding. Look at this verse, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, here's what you ought to do, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your, ignor- in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. If the Lord wills, recognizes the ultimate responsibility for what happens does not lie with us, but with God. God is the one who is sovereign. Remember, God is sovereign. And then he, of course, ties in their boasting where we get this idea of fighting pride with humility when he says all such boasting is evil. This is boasting. If you don't do this boasting, and this boasting is, is evil. Remember that life is short. First um, Peter 1, all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. And he makes his point clear. The grass withers and its flower falls away. We are all getting older. We are all going to die unless God comes first for us. Christ comes first for us. We're all going to die, and we're going to, we're going to fade. And this is the reality of living in a fallen world. You must know these things. And he says, notice, indeed, you have made my days as a handbreadth, just this far. He says, my, my life, my age is nothing before you. Every man in his best state is but vapor. The psalmist asks God to help him remember, remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? As I read this morning from Psalm 90, he said, teach us to number our days. It's helpful to consider how short life is, so don't waste it. Don't spend it on what does not matter, and don't assume you have a lot of it left. I have a lot of friends who have already passed into eternity. I'm only 39. And there are a lot of my friends who are no longer here. I know a lot of you are older than me, and you could say that to a larger degree. But I remember when my friends started passing away, first due to accidents, car accidents, some to taking their own life, others to sickness. And it is kind of scary to realize there are people who never made it past your age that you know. As you're young, that's a very scary thought. Life is short. You don't know how long you have, so use it for the glory of God. Don't, don't just put it all about yourself. Don't assume you have a lot of time left. Every breath we have is his hands. Every, every breath we have is a gift from him. Every breath we have, he shows up at our door and gives us a gift. We should not take it for granted. And never assume you know what's going to happen in your life. This is the essence of being a created being, of being a human being, is that we look around and we say, look, I will do the best I can to honor God and glorify God. I will do everything within my power, but I recognize there are things beyond me that I can't control. Thirdly, there's a third area of humility that we need to wrap our minds around today and wrap our hearts around, and that is humility about your possessions. He deals with people, the future, and now our things. How should we deal with our material wealth and the blessings that God has given us? How can we demonstrate humility in this area? I have two main points here. The first is simply this. Do not abuse possessions to gain security. 
And when I say the word abuse, I mean that you are using something in a way that seeks to exploit it, or you're using something in a way it was never intended to be used. Look at these verses. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. He says, for those who have placed their confidence in possessions to be their salvation, you've got a rude awakening coming. He says, weep and howl for your miseries are coming upon you. There's not an easy way to say that without being harsh. James is direct and harsh. He says, if you have placed your confidence in physical things and material things, you are going to weep and you are going to groan and you are going to howl because all of your life, all the things you've spent your life accumulating, thinking that it will give you security, guess what? It will fail and you will not be secure. And you will look and say, I thought this was going to protect me. I thought this was going to be my security. And he says, it will not. You will find yourself in a very vulnerable position. You have assumed that your riches, which have up to this point allowed you to live a life of pleasure and comfort, will provide pleasure and comfort in the next life. You've gotten used to living at this level. He says, your possessions cannot save you. Do not expect them to do that job. If you keep looking at verses 2 and 3, he gives the reasons why these possessions cannot save. Because if you leaned on these possessions, you rested on them, they won't survive this world. They're not eternal. You can't take them with you. Notice, they're corrupted. That means they decay. The stuff we have breaks and falls apart and needs to be replaced. That is a fact of life. And he says, secondly, your garments have been eaten by moths. Isn't it irritating when you take that coat out of the closet? You, you know, you haven't, in South Carolina, you wear a coat for like three weeks out of the year, right? So that's about it. And you take it out and you're like, oh, dust this thing off. I haven't used it in forever. And there's, there's moths, moths have eaten it. And you're thinking to yourself, are you kidding me? Like, I, I hardly ever use this thing. You'd think that for once it would be useful, but no, now it's eaten by moths. Oh, that's so irritating, right? It's a reminder that your life is made up of the, the things in our life decay, they deteriorate, and other little animals will tear up your stuff. And I'm not just talking about children, right? <laughs> That's one of the things about being a dad, right? Little animals tear up your stuff. Hey, you have to get used to that. The stuff of this world will die. It will perish. It will break. The decaying treasures of this life, he says, will be a witness against you, will eat your flesh like fire. Wow, that's really aggressive. He says, you trusted your riches, and your riches can't save you. You will suffer loss. These things will be burned up in the last day. Jesus describes them like, like wood, hay, and stubble. It's like you set it on fire, boom, it's gone. And you, you think that that's going to save? Why spend so much time abusing these possessions to try to gain security? He says, you have heaped up treasures in the last days. You mistakenly thought the treasure would benefit you in the last day, and it won't. It won't. Jesus said the first will be last, the last will be first. There are going to be many rich people here on this earth that have no riches in heaven. Many, many poor people on this earth who have no riches here who have many riches in heaven. And he says, the, the, do not abuse your possessions to gain security. So what should we think about our possessions? Gifts should be used to glorify God. We are managers and stewards. We are not owners. And the fruits of our labor are blessings from God, but they should not be expected to do more than they can do. They're not meant to give us meaning in life. 
They're meant to do a job, to accomplish a purpose. You're only going to find meaning in worshiping the Lord. You'll find security and humility in seeking God. And seeing these gifts as how God sees them, they're blessings, they're gifts, they're tools, but they're not in and of themselves something to be pursued. Notice what Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How do you become more heavenly minded? Lay up treasures in heaven, and you'll be more heavenly minded where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But if your goal in life is to gain possession so you might have security, it follows logically you might abuse other people to gain those possessions that you believe will give you security. And so we see here God warns against seeing other people as tools for your own prosperity, for using other people to benefit without concern for them. So he says, do not abuse people to gain possessions. God caused down judgment against sinful gain of these people, people who are willing to abuse others in order to benefit, in order to gain a dollar. Verse 4, indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. These rich people had done the unthinkable. They had abused people because they wanted just to make more money. He says, this is shame. And the laborers who mowed the fields, he says, they did the work and you kept back the money by fraud. You said, for whatever reason, oh, I can't pay you today, sorry, I can't do that, I'm sorry, or he just didn't pay him. If you, are, if you have done that, you need to make it right. If you have hired people and have not paid them, if you have bills outstanding that you can pay but you're not going to pay, this is talking to you. You need to be careful if you, we are living a day today of, of easy credit where we can, we can buy things and not ever think about paying for them. This is dangerous because God says you need to pay people when you, when you buy things from them, when you employ them, when you use them. I'm not just talking about the big boss. We tend to see these things. We're like, oh, it's a good thing I'm not rich. I don't have to worry about this stuff. You can be in violation of this even if you have very little. Because it's the attitude of abusing people to gain possessions that matters the most. He says they are, they are, uh, their, their wages, he says, are crying out to them, to God. And it, it, it kind of it, it echoes the idea of when Cain and Abel, when, when, when Cain killed Abel and God says his blood is crying out to me from the ground. Like God knows and God hears the cry of the one who's been harmed. In fact, in Proverbs, we have this, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power in your hand to do so. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you. Notice their wages cry out. These cries have reached the Lord of hosts, here in our translation, the Lord of Sabaoth, that is the God of armies. Now, if there's a name for God that you do not want coming after you would be the Lord of hosts. He, this is his militaristic kind of name. This is the name when we call the Lord of hosts. We're talking about his defense of the defenseless, his power. And if, if you're in the line, that is a dangerous place to be. And he says, here, the God of hosts, the God who has armies, is coming to, just, to, to, to deliver the one who's been picked on, the one who's been violated. In verse 5, he says, you've lived as if this world is the only world that matters. 
You've lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You've flattened your heart. You've fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. He says you, you, you almost like fatten yourself like a farmer might fatten a pig. Like, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Don't you realize you're headed towards disaster? You're headed towards destruction. You're headed towards disappointment and judgment, and you're blind to the coming future just like a pig would be as its way to the slaughterhouse, completely unaware of what's about to happen. He says, you're going that way. He says, turn around. Repent. Stop with this. Rather than being self-reflected, look at verse 6. You've been condemning. He says, you have condemned, you have murdered the just, the one who doesn't resist you, even picked on people who don't have enough strength to fight back. This is a dangerous place for people to be in when they abuse people to gain possessions. And I know that not all of us could, a lot of people look at this and say, well, I, I, I'm not even close to that. I've never done that before. But I would challenge you to think about your possessions. Think about your things and how you approach them. Are you willing to use people to get stuff? Are you willing to abuse people to get things, thinking that those things are more important than the people? As we conclude, I'd like to just draw your attention to a couple things. One, that there is one lawgiver. So we need to recognize the lawgiver is not you. We need to be humble about our relationship with other people. Let God work in people. Don't feel like it's your job to go around and point out everyone's faults. There is one God who will matter. I'm sorry, there's one God. God's will is the one that matters, not our will. Once you acknowledge that your future depends on God's will, you can become humble about your plans. God's will about the future matters the most. Thirdly, God hears the ones who who are abused by greed. God hears them. God knows them. You may think they have no voice, but God hears them. The Lord of hosts, God, God's Sabaoth, hears and knows. And when you employ people with the knowledge that God hears their cries, if you treat them unjustly, you will be humble about your possessions. You will treat them rightly. Because we talked at the beginning about humility is about not seeing God. Humility is about thinking about the world without God in the picture. All of these people, if they, if they approach God, they're approaching like, like God isn't there. The person who thinks about his possessions without God thinks of using people to gain possessions so I can be safe. The person who thinks about his relationships with, uh, with the future thinks, well, I've got to just plan my way into the future and be successful. God doesn't factor in. The third person, the one we first began with, talks about other people, seeing it, being critical of others and being judgmental of them, not thinking about that. All those things are connected with ignoring God. That's why I believe that humility, if you think about it, comes from thinking properly about God. I, I think if we, we, we really boil it down to humility is not just about thinking less of yourself. And you've heard this before. I mean, I've even said it before. Humility is not, thinking of your, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You've heard that, perhaps. And that, that's, that's true. But ultimately, humility is about thinking of God rightly. Because when you have a perspective on God correct, you think about yourself correctly. And you think about your possessions correctly. I think just yourself is just one part of this. We need to be humble with everything in our lives. Think about your possessions with humility. Think about your future with humility. Humility comes from thinking properly about God. This is how we learn humility. And I wonder today, have you been learning humility? What will God bring your way to teach you humility? And when He does, when He changes your life, will you recognize it for what it is, that God loves you and He's begging you to come to Him humbly? Now, I want to close with this. Sometimes people are, uh, I think the, the, first, the first step towards humility is admitting that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's the first step. Because we need to recognize where we really are. And until you're willing to come before Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross was rose, and rose again to save you from your sins, and willing, until you're willing to come to Him in faith and say, Lord, I bring nothing to the table, it's not about me, 
but I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. Please forgive me of my sins. Please rescue me. I want to have a home in heaven with you. I want to be at peace with you. Until you have that point, that moment, you are still lost. And you will still pay the payment for your sin. The Bible says that he who has not believed is condemned already. And until Jesus takes your sin, you have to pay for those sins. But Christ paid for those sins on the cross. He offers to give you liberty. He offers to give you freedom. He offers to give you salvation through belief and faith in him. John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not what? Perish, face judgment, but have everlasting or eternal life. Friend, would you come to Christ today? And if you have come to Christ, would you reorient your heart to thinking about him and being humble before him? Father, we ask you today to work in our hearts and to give us what we need to change. We're thankful for the grace of God that works in us. And I pray, God, that as we now are quiet for a few moments and deal with you, that you would show us the areas that need to be submissive to you. May we repent, turn our heart to you, confess the sin, and believe that you have the answer for our life. May we be obedient to you in these things.